0: Welcome to the Disability Law Show. We're uh, we're back at it. Good to have you along for the ride. John Scholes here and the lawyers, of course, joining us. Uh, James Fireman and Tamara Gopian from Sanfiru, Tamarkin LLP. Reach out anytime you would like. Always good for a chat. one 855 821 Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll give you some more contact information and websites throughout the hour. Okay, emails, guys, and questions are already piling up. we got to whittle our way through these. But uh, first, Tamara, you got something going on what's happening with you today
1: well I've had a few calls on individual disability plans and critical illness plans and most of the time when we're talking on our shows about disability and litigation and all the questions that we get Generally, they are group disability plans. So the ones that really arise out of people's employment with their employer, and that employer will have a plan with one insurer that covers all of their employees. There's actually other products out there. And so, as I said, critical illness is one of them. Life insurance is another one. And there is disability insurance as well that you can get on an individual basis. And the calls that I've been getting, John, are related to policyholders who are getting denied because of misrepresentation, or so the insurance company says is misrepresentation. So I thought it was an important topic to start out with because these are claims that we can help with, and the adjusters, of course, that are denying these kinds of claims or voiding policies, which I'll get to in a moment, are not necessarily doing it on the right footing. So if they are not doing it correctly, obviously our advice would be to start a legal claim and challenge for the policy values of these kinds of, uh, you know, insurance product. Mm -hmm. The reason why I focus on it is because the law has established around these policies to say that the insurance company has a two-year window for contestability. What does that mean? It's a two-year period of time where the insurance company can void the policy, even if you've paid premiums for it, no matter what. So they can decide at least in essence, that they don't think that you have provided the right information or that they don't want to insure you anymore now that they've learned more information about your health, for example, and they can void the policy. Now, when they do that, they do have to pay back premiums and say it's like as if the policy never existed. And so the times where I've seen this happen, a really good example is, for example, someone's smoking status. So people will apply for these kinds of insurance products They'll have to go through a medical questionnaire, an application, and answer a number of questions about their health. And these questions will invariably ask, you know, are you a smoker or non-smoker? Some of these applications I've even seen ask even more specifically, do you smoke cigars or cigarettes? And how often do you smoke? Now, vaping is, is one of these things that should probably be included. Some policies include it, some don't. And so you want to make sure that if you're at this initial stage, and again, your insurance broker should be giving you this advice, is that you want to provide open and honest information and make sure that you're answering as accurately as possible. But there have been times that I have seen more often than not that some of these questions are actually ambiguous. In other words, it's not really clear what they're asking and people can get confused about what to answer. And that ambiguous question is not something the insurance company can stand behind. So, whereas courts have said, look, insurance company, you've got this two-year window to be critical and maybe avoid a policy, but you've also got to be clear about the questions that you're asking people about their health before you insure them. So that is an important element when you're going through and actually applying for critical illness or disability insurance for an, for an individual plan to answer those questions as accurately as you can. And on, on the other end, you're going to ask me, what happens after those two years? Well. It's not just the insurance company looking at this and saying, look, we think you're actually more of a smoker than you told us or you had this back history issue that you didn't tell us about in your application and we're going to just void the policy. They actually, after that two-year window, effectively have you insured and then they need to show a higher level in order to void that policy or cancel the policy or not pay under that policy. And that higher level is negligent misrepresentation. So again, what does that mean? It's a higher test for the insurance company. It almost needs to show that they were, that the individual who was applying for this insurance was reckless or was negligent in applying or even possibly to the level of fraudulent in applying for this insurance. And that's a really high test to meet. And so if you're out there and you're listening and thinking, well, yeah, I've got that premium that I'm paying every month for this disability plan, and, you know, could I be in this zone? Or perhaps you've received a letter saying your your policy has been voided. Don't take it at face value. We are absolutely happy to have consultations with individuals like this so that we can determine, well, what were the questions? Were they fairly written? You know, did you actually disclose your full health history? Is the insurance company on fair footing? And like I said, have they met their obligations under the law? to properly void the policy and if they haven't there is absolutely legal recourse here to pursue a legal claim james what do you think James,
2: well I, i i certainly agree with everything that tamar said and i think very significantly if you are out there you have a personal policy and you have been denied give us a call if you have any concerns about it and by personal policy you know certainly i'm including long-term disability, but it would also include critical illness insurance, which we deal with quite regularly, and even life insurance of a loved one. Uh, If you have any of those policies or if you have a family member who's passed away that has a life insurance policy and the insurer is challenging the legitimacy of it because of some perceived error on the application form, please give us a call because very often there is a very good basis to challenge a denial that's based on the application. Not always, but as Tamar mentioned, there is this two-year time frame after which it becomes much more difficult for the insurance company to take steps to try and void the claim. Even within the two years, it really depends on what they're looking at and how they're characterizing it. So, there is often something that can be done even if the insurance company is saying otherwise. And I would also add that if you are looking to purchase your own private policy, if you don't have coverage or if you want more coverage than what's provided under your employment group plan, it can always be worthwhile to look into that. Now, that's not an area where we have particular expertise in terms of advising people which policy, which insurer to go to and so forth. But I would say it is worthwhile if you are doing that, if you're going through that exercise, and if you're looking at uh, adding adding a personal long-term disability policy, ask your broker about the available riders that you can have. So you can almost always vary the amount of coverage that you have up to a certain point, depending on your income. And obviously the more coverage you get the, uh, you know, the more expensive the premium will be, and that can vary as a percentage of income. But you can also get a rider for own occupation until 65. So what does that mean? So if you have a personal policy, the standard would be the first two years, as in a group policy, the first two years you would be covered if you are disabled from doing your own occupation. And beyond that, it would be any occupation. So after two years of benefits, the test becomes more difficult. And this is a concept we talk about on the show all the time, usually in the context of a group disability policy. But in a personal policy, there is almost always the option to purchase a rider, which essentially just means an additional benefit under the policy, something that makes the policy work a little bit more to your advantage. It'll cost you a bit more, but it can add benefit or it can make it easier to get the benefit if you become disabled. And in this case, an own occupation rider would mean that at the two year mark, rather than the test becoming more difficult and becoming whether you can do any occupation, it would remain at whether or not you can do your own occupation. And this can be really important, especially if you have a physical occupation where uh, your your job requires you to uh, exert yourself in any sort of physical manner, on a regular basis because if you do become injured physically and it's something that it has any permanence to it, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to do anything related to your job. They may be able to say that you could do some other sedentary desk job, but not the job that you had before, and if you have this own occupation rider, then you would be covered up until age 65. And there are other riders as well, so it can be very worthwhile talking to your broker about what is available and how much extra it would cost in order to do that. And, you know, it's a little bit surprising how nominal the additional fees are for a lot of the riders. You might expect them to be very significant, but oftentimes it's adding, you know, maybe another 10 or $20 to your premium each month. Again, you want to talk to your broker about it, but it's certainly something that's worth investigating. And another, another option that would be available for you if you're looking at a private policy, a private disability policy, is a cost of living adjustment and this is something that people write into us about all the time. People want to know why it is that they get approved for benefits and is paying them at X amount because that's the two-thirds of their uh, of their income today and they're they're on policy for five, six, seven years and that hasn't changed. And the reason is because the standard is most policies are going to just stay at that same benefit level while you remain disabled, they don't change year after year. If you have a cost of living adjustment worked into your policy, and you can almost always get that as a rider on a personal policy, then each year it's adjusted according to a formula in the policy. And usually there's a cap, so it's tied to the the consumer price index. And it can go, for instance, no more than four or 5% in a given year, but less if the, Uh, inflation rate is lower. And so what happens is year after year, you're getting a little bit more. So that can be a really nice benefit as well. So it would be very worthwhile looking into those options if you are looking at a personal policy.
0: Good start, guys. We've got to take a short break, get in and out of that as quickly as we can, and we'll get into your email uh, as soon as we come back. Andy, stand by, pal. Yours is up first. In the meantime, reaching out to James and Tamar and to uh, get your email on the show as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number, 1 855 821 5900. We're coming right back. Hang in there. All right, we're back. Disability Law Show. Thanks for sticking around through the break. John Scholes here, along with Tamara Gopian and uh, James Fireman from Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. You want to reach out? Simply go to disabilityrights.ca or help at disabilityrights.ca through email. Phone number, anytime. Toll free, obviously, 1 855 821. 5900 Okay, here's Andy. Guy says, I've been off work for a year and three months. I've been dealing with my works insurance company. My doctors were not listening to me. Finally, I found a doctor who would listen to me. I had several MRIs, and they have found that I have several medical issues. This doctor is saying I can't go back to my old job, but with training, I can do another job. I was also in a car accident, so I've been going to physiotherapy, seeing a kinesiologist and massage therapist. My LTD denied the union told me to appeal i'm in the process of appealing we love that on your show it says not to what should i do i need some advice i would like to get a second opinion thank you for looking at this and helping me if you can all right guys what do you think
2: well uh, good news good news here Um, you can certainly get that second opinion Uh, we're always happy to talk to to anyone who's in this situation anywhere frankly within the disability process, whether you are at the application phase, whether you've just been denied, whether you're looking to appeal, whether you are looking to hire a lawyer, even if you already have a lawyer and you want to just get a second opinion, we are happy to talk to you. There's no charge for the consultation. One's going to ask you for a credit card in order to do that. So that's number one. Number two, uh, Andy is working in a union. So that should be addressed here. And there is a misconception that Being in a union means that you cannot hire a lawyer. That is certainly not true, at least not as a blanket statement. There are certain unions where the collective bargaining agreement, the contract between their union and their employer, will have provisions in there that would prevent hiring a lawyer to dispute the long-term disability uh, policy denials. It's not usually the case. More often than not, in fact, far more often than not, you can hire a lawyer in order to challenge a denial under the policy. But there are occasions where it's otherwise, but we can figure that out really quickly. And for most people, it is pretty simple to access a copy of the collective bargaining agreement. At this point, they are almost all available online. In fact, they're almost all publicly available. Occasionally, you might have to log into your union member page to get it that's not that big a deal. And once we have the collective bargaining agreement, we can figure that out in usually five minutes. So it's not very onerous to figure out whether we can be of assistance or not. And that's a good thing because, you know I, I won't say this across the board, but it is certainly my experience that unions tend to not be very good at providing the members assistance when it comes to long-term disability. There are definitely exceptions. Most unions simply don't have the resources dedicated to dealing with long-term disability disputes. It's just not something that they have prioritized for whatever reason. And I'm not even saying that as a judgment. I'm just saying that as a matter of fact. Most people who contact us that are in unions tell us that their union doesn't really know what to do to help them. Has thrown their hands up in the air and so that's where we can be of great assistance because normally you would be looking to your union for assistance in those situations but often that just isn't there now let's get to the meat of this here and andy's asking about whether or not he should appeal and quite correctly andy has pointed out that having listened to our show before we tell people not to appeal now the one thing i will say is that because andy is in a union it is really important that we first look to see what the prescribed process is. Because unlike non-unionized employees, union employees can sometimes have, a, uh, have within their collective bargaining agreement, or even more so within their policy, a formula for what happens if you are denied that requires you to actually appeal before you can challenge further. So we want to make sure if you're in a union that we're not running afoul of that. And that is obviously an exception to the don't appeal philosophy that we prescribe to. But assuming that is not the case, and it usually is not the case for union members, and certainly is not the case for virtually any non-union employee that we've ever come across, appealing is almost always going to be an enormous waste of time. And the reason for that is pretty simple. You have to think about why there are appeals in the first place. Appeals are not something that you're going to find within the policy, unless you're one of those exceptions in the union that I was referring to before. But for the vast majority of people, the appeal is something that is created by the insurance company for a very specific purpose. And the reason is this. When you apply for long-term disability benefits, and you're hoping that you're going to be approved, and Ultimately, you're not. The insurance company writes back to you and says they're denying your application. If there is nothing else the insurance company says, if they don't give you any direction about what to do now, if you disagree with their decision, virtually everyone is sooner or later going to come to the conclusion that they need some legal advice and they're going to wind up calling a lawyer and asking what they should do about it. And as long as they get to anyone competent, then the lawyer is gonna tell them as long as they have support from their doctors, you should challenge that denial, you should bring a lawsuit. So the insurance company doesn't want that because as soon as you bring a lawsuit, they lose control over the process. That means that if they're not reasonable, if, they, if it's within the context of litigation, if they're not reasonable, eventually they would have to go in front of a judge. That almost never happens because once you bring a lawsuit, Insurance companies know this and come to the table really quickly. But they don't want that. They don't want to have that threat looming at the end of the process. So how do they avoid it? Well, at the end of this denial letter, they say, but you know what? If you disagree with our decision, you still have hope. There's still an option for you. You can you can file this appeal. All you have to do is send us any updated medical information. We'll be happy to reconsider it. And people see this and assume that that is what you're supposed to do, because that's what the insurance company has put in the denial letter. There's no supposed to here. The insurance company is playing you. They are trying to keep you within their system, because if you appeal, that's exactly what you're doing. You are just saying to the insurance company, I know that you've denied me already, but pretty please look at this again and maybe come to a different conclusion. And you should have absolutely no confidence that they're going to do that because you, the insurance company is in business to do one thing they're in business to make money and they make money by denying benefits or cutting them off as soon as they can they are motivated to do exactly that and when they find a justification to terminate your benefits it's very difficult to get them to change their mind the only way to do that is if they know that there is a consequence to not acting reasonably, and the only way that there is going to be a consequence is if you bring a lawsuit, you start litigation, you appeal. There is no consequence to them continuing to ignore what should be obvious based on what your treating doctors are saying. Your treating doctors are supporting that you are disabled from work. You're disabled from work. Simple as that. And if your insurance company isn't going to look at that reasonably. The only option is to start litigation. Now, there are exceptions to that. If you have brand new information that the insurance company has never seen and it significantly changes the outlook, if you have a new cancer diagnosis that explains your symptoms in a way that was previously not understood, sure, appeal that and put that in front of the insurance company. They may or may not change their mind, but there's at least a chance that they might in that, in that scenario. But if you're expecting to go to the insurance company with the same information that you had, perhaps more emphatically from your doctors, but essentially the same medical information, and you're expecting them to come to a different conclusion, you're asking to be disappointed. That's all you're doing. That's what's gonna happen. So don't waste your time with an appeal. It doesn't make any sense. All you're gonna do is delay the the amount of time it takes to resolve. If you go and do the appeal, you're going to be waiting an extra month, two months, three months, however long it takes them to adjudicate that appeal, and then you're going to be starting the litigation, which means you're going to be resolving it one, two, or three months later than you otherwise would have. So in any case, I hope that answers your question, Andy. Tamar, anything to add to that?
1: Well, I was looking at Andy's um, definition around where he's at in the process. So he says he's been off work for a year and three months, and his doctor is saying that he, can do, he can't do his old job, but with training, he can do another job. That's where I really focused on with this. Not that I don't, I, of course, I agree with your comments, Jane James, about appeals, but I think it's another log on that fire, right? To say, look, he's gonna get close probably to that change of definition. And it's gonna be that much tougher, I think, if the medical information is out there saying he could do another job. For the insurance company to be that much more emboldened to say, look, at the two-year mark, we wouldn't have paid beyond the two years anyway, right? And so these kinds of arguments are somewhat nuanced and I think it's important for people like Andy to understand that the legal claim allows lawyers to argue with their lawyers properly on how this may play out in his specific situation. We've also got the fact that he's got a motor vehicle accident and so could there be other claims around the motor vehicle claim? Could there be other measures of compensation there? We definitely act for people in motor vehicle claims as well. It's the kind of work that James and I both did when we first started out in this business. And so it's important for Andy to know that, unfortunately, the unions don't necessarily understand that interplay, and it makes it that much more important for people to assert their legal rights when they've got some complexity with their claim, both from the disability side of things and the potential personal injury avenues and other compensation that Andy might be entitled to.
0: I think that's a pretty thorough answer, guys. Nicely done, Andy. Appreciate you uh, sending the email along as well. Again, the email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. Question, guys. Is an insurance company likely to deny benefits claim when someone has put all their paperwork supporting their disability? Because it it can mount up, right?
1: It can. It can. And, And the unfortunate part is, John, that people do send a lot of information and they still get denied claims. And so, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you've provided everything that that's gonna satisfy the insurer. It should, theoretically it absolutely should and we encourage people always, put all that information over to the insurance company when you're applying for disability or trying to make sure that your LTD benefits continue. But at the end of the day, insurance companies have really one mandate and that mandate is to collect those premiums and try and pay out those LTD benefits or even short-term benefits as little as possible. And so, the importance with the paperwork is not just the paperwork in and of itself. It's the contents of those documents, right? And you want to make sure that whoever's in your health team, whether it's your family doctor or other practitioners, even if they're not MDs, if they are part of your care and part of the process of recovery to get you to the point where you can potentially consider returning back to work, all of those opinions and records and information are really important to provide the insurance company. It also offers an avenue to validate symptoms and things that may be going on because it's not always so cotton dry right it's not you know the, the broken wrist is not the one that we see regularly the kinds of claims that we see typically have elements of subjective claims whether it be pain or symptoms that are not even diagnosed where there's no label on it and it doesn't necessarily mean that these people are not entitled to disability benefits and so you want to make sure that all that information is there and if you are being met by a barrier from the insurance company then there are avenues and just like James went through with Andy's email you know this is why the appeal process is set to fail and it can frustrate people especially if they've been around the block medically to try and figure out what's happening with their health and so again provide all that information but don't necessarily expect that it's going to mean that your benefits are going to be approved or continuing to be paid and if they're not and it's not a reason basis then this is where you want to really challenge the insurance company.
0: Great stuff, Andy. Lori, you are up next. Thank you so much for uh, for joining the show. We'll do that momentarily. we got to get into a quick break, guys, and get back to more of your questions. In the meantime, the number one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. And we will move along as well to mydisabilityquestions.com, another place for you to ask questions. Won't necessarily make it on air, but we're going to get to one of those very shortly as well. So stand by for that as we continue the Disability Law Show. Hang on. And we're back with more of the Disability Law Show. Thank you for sticking around. James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, reach out to them anytime. They've got a great staff and always ready for a phone call in the chat. Won't cost you a dime to pick up a phone. right? right, 1 855 821 5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. Lori, you're up next. Says, guys, saw your clip on YouTube. Uh, I was denied my employer, I was denied by my employer for medical disability leave. I was also being harassed and working in a hostile work environment before my leave and I asked uh, to file a grievance. Anything else I can do? What do you think, James?
2: Well, certainly there is a lot that can be done and that's where having a firm that has expertise in both disability and employment is really, really significant because the issues involved in one can impact the other greatly. And if you have two different lawyers that are representing you for two parts of your potential claim, sometimes there's a concern about whether the overall result is going to be more beneficial. What you want is to have one mind that is looking at the entire problem holistically to put you in the best position at the end of the day. You don't want both sides looking just to maximize their own area potentially at the cost of you. So that's where having a firm that has lawyers that have expertise in both employment and disability is really, really useful, as in this case. When you're talking about a hostile work environment and filing a grievance, I assume that, Laurie, that you you belong to a union. Now, if you are unionized, it isn't something where we would be able to assist on the employment side. But as I was speaking about before in the last segment, Even if you're unionized, we can almost always help from a disability standpoint. So really the issue is going to come down to whether or not there is a disability that is standing on its own or whether this is an issue that is specifically related to the workplace only. And this is something that we talk about often because insurers, when they see that there is an element of involvement from the workplace in a disability claim, will almost always have a knee-jerk reaction. They'll say, okay, well, this is a workplace issue, and this is disability insurance, not workplace insurance, and therefore you're not entitled to benefits. That is really a superficial analysis, and that is not the way that policies work. Now, it's true that if you have a disability that is specific to your own workplace, and it would still not prevent you from doing your occupation for a different employer, then that would not be covered under the policy. That is correct. So if you have a toxic work environment that is causing you depression and anxiety, but that depression and anxiety is only present when you're at your workplace, and if you were to have the same job for a different employer, it would not be there. You'd be able to do that occupation for a different employer. The insurance company would be correct in denying that claim. I have told people this in the past. When people contact me in this situation, I've told them. Unfortunately, your insurance company is correct. This is a workplace issue. But even if your disability is caused by an issue in the workplace, even if it's a toxic work environment, the question isn't what caused your issue. The question is, what is the result and what are you able to do? Because if you are left with a generalized condition, depression and anxiety that is present regardless of whether or not you're at your place of employment, It is something that is affecting you, even if you were to go to a completely different employer, perhaps it's affecting you outside of the work environment at all. If that is the case, if you now have a generalized condition, then it's something where your insurance policy absolutely should be responding. But insurance companies will see that there's a workplace issue, and they won't go beyond that. Their analysis will be very superficial. They'll see toxic work environment or workplace issue, and they'll deny the claim, and then you're left with figuring out what to do about it. That's a situation that we deal with all the time, and the reality is, as long as there's medical support from your doctors, from your therapists, that you are not able to return to employment, particularly to your own occupation, not your job. Your job is the occupation you do for your specific employer but you can't return to your occupation, which is your occupation as it relates to any potential employer. As long as you have that support from your doctors or therapists, then you're gonna be entitled to benefits. And if your insurance company says otherwise, we can certainly challenge them and bring them to the table and get you the result you're looking for. Tamar,
0: what do you think?
1: Well, James did a very thorough job, so I uh, kudos to him. I, I think what I wanted to just simply offer Lori as an add-on, because she, when she emailed us, she said, "Well, I saw your clip on YouTube, so I couldn't help myself, but just to kind of emphasize to other li- other listeners out there, we've, we have a ton of resources, guys. So if you're listening to the radio show, awesome. You know, yes, we have YouTube clips. Uh, we've got a television show, and specific to Lori's situation, we actually have a really good memo on our website. One of our websites called ltdfaq.ca." That talks about the interplay between employment and disability. Mm-hmm. And really outlines, uh, even in the same detail that James provided on, if you have a toxic work environment, you know where is that line between being entitled to disability benefits or potentially not, and what kind of recourse you might have. And so, if Lloyd and others were listening, required any further information. All of that is out there. We try and push out as much as we can to sort of level the playing field, right, between these individuals looking for for support from their disability insurers and then the disability insurers themselves who are really not, you know, providing as much information as they should to claimants about the process and really sometimes even the reasons why they deny disability claims. And you know, that creates a balance of power or balance, a shift in the balance of power rather is what I meant to say. And so it's really, really tricky anyway so all of that is out there for for people like lori
2: yeah i think lori, that's actually yep. really really i was just gonna say i think it's a really important resource to get out there because a lot of people that may be listening because it's a very easy thing to do turn on the radio listen to the show they want some help but have difficulty picking up the phone now i'll, I'll emphasize you should uh, again you don't you don't need to provide a credit card we're happy to talk to you if you have any issue around the disability process. But if you want something a little bit easier to start Go to our website go to the faq page because there will be very detailed information that you can access again this is entirely for free there's no paywall you just go on go into the website look at the faq and you're going to find information on virtually any issue that may come up during the process and this is going to give you a really good starting point this is going to give you a foundation in the knowledge that you need to deal with your insurance company and to figure out what to do and it's actually not a bad idea to read that even before calling because that can put you in a position to ask better questions when you call us to have more information and to better understand the process so that you can get to the end result you want more efficiently
0: Lori, thank you again for the uh, the email. We got to take a short break. Get back into more questions. I did mention my disabilityquestions.com. That is where we're going to land on the other side of this, and uh, the phone number anytime as well. Keep this uh, written down somewhere. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. We'll continue more of the disability law show. Hang on. You bet. Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go. We're going to pack in as much as we can for the remainder of the hour. Uh, I mentioned MyDisabilityQuestions.com, guys. That's where I'm going to go for the next question. Uh, Again, it doesn't always appear on air, but you can go there yourself to MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Type in your question. It will get answered. It will get read, of course, and it'll possibly appear on a show. Also, a searchable database on that website, so your question or a similar one may have been asked. You can search it and uh, save a bit of time, right? Okay, here we go. I've been on LTD for nine months and should be back to work in Three months. I would like to sell an investment property due to rising interest rates. How will the income from the sale affect my LTD, or does it not affect it at all? If it does not affect it, should I wait to sell once back to work, or wait until the next tax year? I'm sensing a bit of math here, James. What do you think, pal?
1: It's math. It's math, and it's finance, and it's all these things that you know, we're, we're good at, but <laughs> maybe not so much in the legal realm. So, look, this this is an important question, though, right, John and James, because. People don't know, right? Like, what do you do when you're on disability and you get these forms that say you have to disclose if you're coming into other income? And so I do appreciate the question because the the source really of an answer to this is the disability policy. I my inclination is that an investment property and you know any kind of income related to an investment property is not necessarily income quote, quote unquote that the insurance company would get a credit for. But you want to be sure you understand why or If there's other sources of income that you're curious about or interested in or maybe coming into money with, you want to understand whether or not the insurance company gets their dirty little hands on it. And so I always say to people, get a copy of that disability policy. Not the booklet, the actual policy wording. And if you put it in writing to the insurance company, in theory they're supposed to provide it. There's insurance acts that say they're supposed to provide it. And your employer is also supposed to provide it, but make sure you put it in writing. And then, invariably, there will be a section in it that says, this is what we'll pay. And then, here are the deductions or the offsets that we'll take if you do come into other sources of income. I mean, the biggest one we always talk about is CPP disability. This is a government-sponsored disability program plan that typically provides people up to $1,500 or so a month if they are qualified as disabled under the government's definition, which is to have a severe and prolonged disability. So you can see even the way that the government has structured their disability plan, it dovetails with how you know private disability insurers have created their disability plans, and of course because they are driven by you know premiums and payments and this sort of thing, they're going to try and get credits for these kinds of disability plans. But let's go back to the question in and of itself, which is what about investment property investment income? It's only income if there is a profit, and even then, there's you know I'm, I'm not a finance guru, but there's issues around cap gains and these sorts of things Mm -hmm. and I'm not again I'm not a financial advisor here but the importance of that is because words and disability policies matter and I have yet to see one that says that investment income is one that's an allowable deduction I've seen pensions I've seen employment income I've seen as I said CPP disability I've seen workers compensation benefits but I have not yet to see that passive quote-unquote income. Income that you receive as a result of not actual employment or work, but rather good investments, is one that the insurance company takes credit for. RSPs is also another one that comes to mind, because again, it's a savings avenue that it is an income source. You can get gains on that, but it's not necessarily an offset or a deduction or a credit that the insurance company would get under their policy. But as I said, the starting point is always the policy. What do you think, James?
2: First of all, I want to dispel the rumor that all lawyers are bad at math. (laughs) Not true. There was a point in time when I actually was looking to go into actuarial science. But leaving that aside, um, I agree with everything that you're saying, of course. uh, When we look at any income that is received while you're in the disability period, while you're on leave and are, are, are in the claims process, the issue is the extent to which is active or passive income that is really what's critical at the end of the day so an investment property if you phrase it that way would not be something you would ever expect to see the insurance company be entitled to take as an offset but what's an investment property versus something that you're earning an active income off of well you have to take a look at what's involved you know if you are an active landlord in any way if you're going around and collecting rents and making sure that uh, you know, the fixtures are working and so forth, it's gonna get to a point where it looks like it's active income. Whereas you know, this is just a, you're one of several investors in a group of properties and you, know, you just put your money in and you get a check at the end of the year, that's passive income. Same thing when you're looking at investing in the stock market, for example. You know, if you just have a portfolio of stocks that you look at from time to time and occasionally buy one or sell one, that shouldn't be a big deal. But on the other hand, if you're a day trader, at a certain point that becomes your your employment. That becomes an active source of income, and so you got to be careful about those sorts of issues when you're looking at other sources of income beyond your employment.
0: Guys, let's get to another question. You only got a couple minutes to go. It says, are insurance adjusters and insurance companies subject to human rights laws such as not discriminating against a claimant for their disability? It's a good question. What do you think?
1: It is a good question, and I think it's one that hopefully I can do justice in the time that we have left on the show. Uh, And here's what I want to get into, John, is that, yes, inherently they are expected, insurance companies and adjusters are expected to abide by human rights legislation. Certainly, insurance companies as employers have to abide by human rights legislation. But the policy that they apply in looking at disability claims isn't necessarily one that is quote-unquote subject to the human rights laws as we understand them as lawyers. So what do I mean by that? The insurance company will draft the policy in conjunction with the employer and there's a couple of moving parts but generally speaking the insurance companies say this is our policy do you want it? If you do here's the price for it you pay for it and the terms in them can vary but not so much so that they are as different as they would be, say, in an employment contract, like we would look at in the analysis of an employment contract. But they're both contractual. And so human rights laws and legislation and issues around discrimination, haven't we haven't necessarily seen that bear itself out per se as it relates to disability, but I think we should. And I think we should because there are provisions in the policies that we see, James and I, quite regularly that I think may give rise to human rights issues. The one that comes to mind most is there's this exclusion that says if you've got a disability around substance use or illegal substances like alcohol and drug use, that you are then excluded from being entitled to disability benefits. Well, substance use is a recognized disability, and it's recognized in other platforms beyond just the disability policy. So I do think that it gives rise to a potential human rights issue or discrimination against individuals who have substance use issues. I would make the similar argument even with policies that exclude the entitlement to long-term disability benefits if you are on a parental leave, maternity leave in particular. If you're on a mat leave, you're not entitled to LTD. Is that in and of itself discriminatory? I think there's a good argument to make that it could be. And certainly if we had the opportunity to make those arguments in the context of these legal claims, we will and we should. James, last words?
2: No, I, I mean, I certainly agree. When Whenever we're taking a look at an issue, it always makes sense to go beyond just the initial analysis about whether or not this is something that is uh, covered by the policy and look at whether or not the policy itself is fair, whether the policy can be challenged. Usually, a court is going to provide deference to the agreement that the two parties made, but that always has to be done in the context of the overriding laws or constitution and the the Human Rights Act and making sure that everything is done in a way that is going to be equitable to everybody. So yeah, Tamara, you're you're absolutely right. And it is something that we look at. And it's something that as a group we discuss on a semi-regular basis when these issues come up. And we do look at whether or not in certain cases it is something that we can challenge beyond just the words of the policy, whether or not the policy itself is fair and should be a problem.
0: And hey, with that, we're against the clock, guys, but well done. You snuck it in there. We're going to leave it there for uh, for this week. Give everybody the opportunity to reach out. Now that we're done, one 855 821 is the number. That email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. And for other questions to be asked, you can go to mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.